Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Amarada Tournament Our host is Dr. Adam Lachlan, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The NY Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing organization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NuclearCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest. James Kraska is Chair and Charles H. Stockton Professor of International Maritime Law in the Stockton Center for International Law at the Naval War College. And James is going to talk to us today about a topic we've never actually had on NuclearCast, international law. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where as we think through past conflicts, current conflicts and potential conflicts in the future, international law plays an important role. And for James being one of the leading maritime law guys in the country, I thought, who better to have on Nuclecast than he? So welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you very much, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity to meet with you today. So for our audience who I w- I'm not sure how many uh, international law experts we have, I- I'd be willing to bet that within the audience, it's not many. So f- can you give us sort of a brief history of international law and the impact it's had on conflict over time? Absolutely. So if you think about international law, it is the language of diplomacy and it underpins the sovereign state system that we have today. So the contemporary world dates back to 1648 and the Peace of Westphalia, when more than 300 kingdoms and principalities in Central Europe got together to develop what is the modern state system today, which basically resolved that each of these kingdoms and principalities and empires would be sovereign or be the highest authority within their borders. And that really is reflected today in the sovereign state system that we have with the UN Charter. It's the foundation, dates back to 1648. And so how has it played a role in shaping or preventing or limiting conflict, you know, over time? Well, the basis of state sovereignty, uh, which still... Is uh, governs the globe despite um, challenges to the sovereign state, including things like the internet, uh, is that each each state can govern within its own borders. And this actually reduced a lot of conflict among uh, different kingdoms and principalities. And it provides a bright line rule, sort of like strong fences make good neighbors, that states will, through acts of comity and self-interest, recognize that other states are also sovereign in the international system. Uh, It also, uh, through the UN Charter, uh, recognizes that the aggressive use of force is not an appropriate or acceptable means to resolve disputes among states. And so really, international law the Peace of Westphalia, and today the UN Charter are the foundation for all of the nations to 
have a stable global order. So what would then be sort of the weaknesses and then the strengths of international law? That's a great question. In fact, even some lawyers would challenge, is international law actually even law? So it does have lots of weaknesses. Uh, Let's focus on the strengths first. The strengths are that international law provides a common rule book, a common template that all states and all different cultures uh, can and have bought into. And even states that violate international law say Iran or North Korea, for example, sometimes Russia or China, uh, even these states couch their arguments in terms of international law. And so what that means is that international law has a powerful normative influence on states, and it's widely accepted across cultures. That said, we know that international law has a lot of weaknesses because it has failed sometimes to restrain the worst behavior of states. Why is that? Well, if you think about national law, why is national law effective? And what are the elements of a national law, an effective legal system, an effective governing system, which is uh, governed by the rule of law? What does that mean? Let's take the United States, for example. We have an executive branch, a legislative branch, and a judicial branch. And each of these are independent. And in the United States, especially, one of the unique, relatively unique things about the United States is we have checks and balances among these three different uh, institutions. If you try to transpose those to international law, you quickly run into problems. What is the international legislature? There isn't one. There's the UN General Assembly, but the UN General Assembly has authority over what? Only its own budget. That's the extent of the UN General Assembly's authority, uh, which is, uh, was resolved in, the, in, in a case called the Necessary Expenses Case, which, it, which determined that that was the, uh, the proper reach of the UN General Assembly. We see this with the recent uh, Israel-Gaza resolution, for example. So there's no international lawmaking body. And instead, what you have is uh, an ad hoc uh, collection of diplomatic conferences that can negotiate uh, and adopt treaties. And then those treaties might enter into force among the states that that join them. And that can serve as sort of a substitute for lawmaking, for traditional lawmaking, statutory lawmaking, in which you want to codify rules of international law, but it's imperfect. It's not a legislature. There is no legislature. There's not a single legislature. So that's one problem. That's one weakness. The second weakness is that there's no executive. There's no enforcement of international law, which is, of course, you know, quite obvious. Now, there is the role of the UN Security Council, but it has, you know, all of, all of the political uh, challenges that it confronts, particularly with vetoes by China and Russia, the two major autocracies in the world that, uh, that often are going to be uh, opposing the major democracies, uh, the United States, United Kingdom, and uh, France, and all the other democracies that are partners and friends and allies of, of these three uh, superpowers. So there's no real executive and Consequently, any sort of enforcement of international law is ad hoc. That might mean 
often U.S. action because the United States is uh, has such an overmatch on most other countries' uh, enforcement capabilities. But it's not just the United States. It might be France operating in Africa, for example. Sometimes they have served that function. So this is the second real weakness of international law. And then, of course, there is no international court system that is effective in the way that you would have in a national system. There's the International Court of Justice, but states are sovereign, as we were just talking about, and therefore states cannot uh, be compelled to submit to jurisdiction. They must consent to submit to jurisdiction. And that is not necessarily a recipe for success. If you have a criminal defendant and you bring that person before the judge, and if the judge has to get their consent before the judge can move forward on the case, uh, you can quickly see that that's, um, you know, that's very difficult. Now, there are some glimmers uh, of, uh, of hope here and there. Um, I would say on the international court system, there's the, the International Criminal Court in which uh, member states, the United States is not a member state of that institution, but member states have taken it upon themselves to uh, exercise enforcement jurisdiction collectively. Uh, that's worked in some cases, particularly for uh, for leaders of uh, sort of heinous um, acts such as genocide. Um, but these are necessarily leaders from weaker states uh, that have somehow found themselves within the jurisdiction of one of those ICC members. So th- there's glimmers here and there of trying to implement these three uh, institutions of, of law in international law. But of course, it's imperfect. So if we think about, you know, the big example right right now is, of course, the Ukraine. And it seems that that's a, a pretty clear failure of international law. And, and Ukraine was sort of a, a perfect example of where we had these, you know, international agreements between Russia and the United States. And Ukraine had given up its nuclear weapons and had promises of security in the Budapest Memorandum. And, and then it completely collapsed. Can, can you maybe talk about that and why did that happen? And it, it, does that sort of give us anything to think through or a better understanding of international law? What does it all mean? Yeah, no, this is, this is a, you know, part of the perennial questions of international law. So I would quote a famous international lawyer, Lou, Lou Henkin from Harvard Law School, who said, Most states comply with most international law most of the time. Obviously, the Russia-Ukraine is a a violation of international law because despite whatever association Ukraine had with uh, the the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation, uh, the Ukraine is a sovereign state. It's a member of the United Nations. And so those historical uh, issues or problems uh, obviously should have been uh, addressed in a peaceful way between Russia and Ukraine, and they were not. Um, so, you know, where does that leave us? Well, it's the recognition that uh, sometimes some international lawyers tend to sort of glance over, and that is that uh, international law cannot solve all your problems. It's just one element of the state system. And so I consider myself a a legal realist. 
the School of Legal Realism also emerged from Harvard Law School. Um, Dean Roscoe Pound, about 100 years ago, said, let us not be legal monks. And so I would always um, refer to this when we're dealing with these difficult questions in the real world. Let's not be legal monks. And you can't expect international law to solve all your problems. Uh, and so, of course, you know, with the, the status of uh, the, the sovereignty of Ukraine, international law has failed. And you have to acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, so there's the, the second big case, of course, and that's the case of Taiwan. And we, you know, with the, the People's Republic of China, we, we know since 1949, they've, you know, they went into Tibet, which Tibet was not part of China. And then they went into, you know, Xinjiang, which was a republic at the end of World War II. And then they went into Mongolia and Manchuria. And, you know, we look at, you know, a perfect case now, you know, is this this international maritime case, of course, in the South China Sea, where they've essentially ignored very clear rulings that they cannot expand into the territorial waters of you know, the Philippines and other nations. And then, then there's Taiwan. So is, is international law even relevant in helping to prevent a conflict? You know, this, this uh, attack on Taiwan that, you know, many, many folks think is, you know, it's inevitable, you know, it's either peaceful reunification or it's, you know, invasion of Taiwan. Does it have any role? And then let's suppose we know that the the Chinese would invade or that they would violate international law. Is there anything we can do preemptively using international law to try to stop it? No, it's a great question. Uh, so what I would say, you know, obviously Taiwan, it's a, it's a complex uh, set of issues. What I would say though, is that um, I wouldn't speak in terms of China's effort to reunify Taiwan because of course the Chinese communist party has never ruled Taiwan. Uh, so, you know, the sort of the existential question is, is Taiwan a state or is it uh, part of China? Both Taiwan and China uh, recognize that there's one China. They're just not exactly uh, in agreement on, you know, what, what is that one China? Uh, the United States policy is based on three communiques. It's a policy. Uh, it's not uh, sort of a legally binding edict that the United States uh, has has bought into. So obviously, um, you know, this is, this is a complex uh, equation. So what about the value, though, of international law? I think that there is some value here. At a minimum, there's a normative value. The South China Sea arbitration uh, determined that there is no lawful basis for China's nine-dash line claim, which, as you said, claims uh, about 90% of the South China Sea. Now, this is not a small area. This is 15 times as large as the Persian Gulf. It's an enormous area. And the, uh, the coastal states situated around the South China Sea, uh, the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, Brunei, even Indonesia, they have a, a lawful right to not just a territorial sea of 12 miles, but an exclusive economic zone out to 200 miles in which they have exclusive sovereign rights and jurisdiction over fishing and oil and gas out to 200 miles. And then even beyond that, they may have some jurisdiction over the continental shelf, 
for oil and gas and seabed minerals that often can extend beyond 200 miles. And it actually does. It appears like it does for uh, several of the states there, in particular, Vietnam and Malaysia. And, and then on the uh, eastern side, it appears the Philippines, outside of the South China Sea, the Philippines has an, a, a, an extended continental shelf claim. All these derive from the rules that were resolved and adopted in the Law of the Sea Convention in 1982. Uh, and China, of course, is a party to that and has a legal obligation to respect the rights of those uh, neighboring states, of all states. Now, China has not done so. As you said, that they, they had, uh, they've suffered a, a, uh, an award in which they lost five to zero in arbitration, a legally binding arbitration, which was unanimous that China was encroaching on the rights of its neighbors. Where does that leave us? I still think that there's value in that decision because it's very difficult for China to explain it to its own people, uh, as well as explain it to the rest of the world. And frankly, they have not been able to. And so that decision really has galvanized the, if I can use the term, the global community. It really sort of underscores, even for disinterested states, Madagascar, Saudi Arabia, now they understand, wait a minute, uh, if you look at this objectively, China is, uh, is a danger to its neighbors. And I think that has a value that folds into the geopolitical equation. And therefore, China has suffered consequences. There's not, uh, as we talked about, there's not a, a, you know, an executive uh, branch. There's not a, uh, any sort of legal enforcement of this decision, but it's had a powerful normative influence in, uh, frankly, in shaming China. And, you know, this is, this is a tangible outcome of the case. And China continues to try to uh, try to climb out of this hole that it's dug itself into. Now, before we move on, we got to take a quick break. But when we get back, can you explain the relevance of international law and potentially preventing an attack on Taiwan? You're listening to Nuclecast, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Uh, international law, and in particular the law of the sea, is absolutely essential, not just to deter an attack on Taiwan, but really if we can look more broadly, it's essential to global stability. Uh, here's why. Because the rules in the law of the sea are based on a concept of mare librum or a liberal order of the oceans in which vessels and aircraft and submarines from all nations are entitled to travel, transit, traverse the oceans freely and unimpeded. And indeed, this is the absolute first essential requirement for the global alliance system that maintains world order. First, if you think about uh, American grand strategy, the U.S. strategy uh, has been bipartisan for more than 100 years. 
U.S. grand strategy has been bipartisan for more than 100 years, at least since World War I. And what it has said is that the United States is geographically fortunate because we have uh, dominance and security in the Western Hemisphere. We have friendly neighbors to the north and south of us. There are two other centers of power in the world, Europe and Asia. And the United States policy is to prevent and has been ever since Imperial Germany uh, in the First World War to prevent the emergence of a hegemonic power in either Europe or Asia. The only way to do this is to maintain this air and sea bridge throughout through the oceans with military power and economic connections. And so this explains American grand strategy in World War I, in World War II, during the Cold War. And also it explains the disagreements the United States has with China over freedom of navigation and overflight and other internationally lawful uses of the oceans in the Western Pacific. And this, that, that is the cornerstone of, uh, of Taiwan security, which is that the United States and other countries uh, may operate throughout the oceans in order to aid, to come to the, the, the help of Taiwan in the event of a crisis. So this is all underpinned by international law, and we would allow these legal norms to erode uh, at, at our great disadvantage. So it it sort of seems in some respects that it's similar to that, you know, that example where uh, Andrew Jackson very famously allegedly said in response to John Marshall's decision in Worcester v. Georgia, you know, John Marshall has made his decision, now let him enforce it. In in some respects, it it kind of seems like that's where we are with international law, and the, you know that's essentially what the Chinese have said. Well, you know, it's great because correct me if I'm wrong, but it it seems like the whole point of what Russia, China, Iran, North Korea want to do is overturn this system that sort of sees international law as legitimate. A am I wrong about that? And then how do you prevent that from happening? particularly, is there a role for international law in doing that? Uh, no, you're exactly on target. And so that quotation is completely apt to international law. Let them enforce it. So what does that mean? It means that we're in a sovereign state system in which you have to be prepared for enforcement through self-help, through, uh, uh, through um, unilateral or hopefully collective action. Uh, and so that's exactly where the United States and other countries find themselves. Other countries, uh, it doesn't matter if it's Canada, the Netherlands, they all have a stake in ensuring uh, the U.S. and as well as themselves can operate freely in the oceans. They also all have a stake in the U.N. Charter, the Constitution for World Order, and the U.N. Charter prohibits aggressive uh, uses of force. Even the threat of the aggressive use of force is pro prohibited under Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the UN Charter. And so this, is, this has caused some bit of angst and even exhaustion on the part of the United States. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's President Obama or President Trump or President Biden, uh, or frankly, during the Cold War, the issue of burden sharing 
of, uh, of providing executive action in order to maintain this world order is, uh, is something that, that a lot of states ought to take uh, a more active role in. Uh, because with the emergence of uh, China as a great power and the resurgence of Russia, uh, the United States is pre- stretched pretty thin and no state can maintain or, or do this alone. And that's why it's important for uh, treaty allies in NATO and the five treaty allies in East Asia, uh, Australia, Japan, Korea, the Philippines and Thailand as well as numerous other strategic partners uh, and, uh, and, and friends and allies around the world to contribute to this global project. Yeah, and it, it sort of seems that one of the big challenges is when, you know, the Russians, for example, invaded Ukraine, and we had this great opportunity to sanction them and impose you know, international law or, you know, the Chinese, whenever they violate it, those bad actors seem to understand that there are going to be, you know, the the French are sort of famous for undermining sanctions uh, and, you know, because they have their own self-interest and their self-interest aren't inherently in imposing international law on folks. And so I wonder if it's a self-help, self-help environment and not everybody wants to go along, you know, how, how successful can it ever be? Well, it's a great question. So I would say that it has been successful, but what we're, what we're always contending with is a collective action problem, what economists call a collective action problem and free riders on the system. Here's a perfect example. Uh, All of NATO or, uh, let's say um, uh, other other countries in East Asia treaty allies are completely dependent, completely dependent on the U.S. nuclear umbrella, and as a consequence, they have a direct stake in freedom of navigation and overflight, in particular for not just U.S. surface ships and aircraft. B-2 bombers, B-52 bombers, but submarines. And of course, submarines are the most survivable leg of the of the triad, uh, ballistic missile submarines. And these submarines require transit passage, a legal regime to be able to go through straits used for international navigation, the Strait of Gibraltar, uh, the Strait of Hormuz, the Strait of Malacca and Singapore, uh, and indeed the Northwest Passage. These submarines have to be able to freely transit in order to maintain the nuclear umbrella and secure strategic deterrence and a second strike capability. So if you are in Poland or if you are in Austria, uh, as a NATO member, you have as much stake in the security of that legal regime and the actual security of those ballistic missile submarines as uh, any other country. And so this, there is some work to ensure that other countries uh, realize that with this strategic umbrella and the alliance connections that we have, that their security depends on, um, that they ought to be able to take a greater role in shaping the normative space and in advancing these issues in international law. When the United States sends... uh, uh, when the United States sends P-51 
uh, maritime patrol aircraft operating in the South China Sea or uh, East China Sea, those aircraft um, are collecting intelligence that is required not just for Japan security, but it reverberates to Korea, the Philippines, and even countries that are not direct allies or even necessarily strategic partners benefit from this stabilizing effect. The transparency that the United States and its allies are extracting from these closed societies. Yeah, it's a you, you brought up this, you know, the role and importance for the nuclear enterprise in terms or deterrence writ large. And it's, it's you know, you, the example you gave is one I had never actually thought about. So that was, you know, that's kind of a, one of those things. It's like, huh, I hadn't thought of that. So thanks for that one. Now, we are at the time in the show where Bob likes to come out. So let me bring out Bob. And so as I rub, rub my lamp and Bob pops out. Now, Bob grants three wishes to all guests, but they have to be wishes related to the topics we've been discussing. But Bob has put one very important stipulation on that. He does not grant the wish of world peace. Um, he's granted that to Miss America, but he will not grant that to you. So you get three wishes related to our topics. So, James, wish number one. Uh, wish number one. Um, I think that uh, I would wish that uh, the United States and its uh, treaty allies in East Asia uh, would develop a uh, a uh, missile complex, inter intermediate range uh, conventional missile complex um, that would help to address the great overmatch posed by uh, China's mobile missiles along the east coast of China uh, and have these uh, missiles uh, distributed, uh, ideally mobile on land and at sea um, throughout the region. Uh, in my view, we face the exact same challenge that we did during the Cold War with the Russian introduction of the, um, uh, of the uh, intermediate range ballistic missiles, uh, the SS-25. And we addressed that through ground launch cruise missiles and Pershing-2 missiles in the NATO alliance. And my view is that we need a, an analogous response in East Asia. Uh, I think we're heading there, but um, probably not as quickly as, uh, as would be optimal. Uh, and those, uh, th those systems also uh, ought to have um, uh, hypersonic capability. That would be my, uh, my view. Okay, so uh, that's, that's the first number. wish. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty tall order, isn't it? Um, that is. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually, you find, though, that Japan and Korea, interestingly, um, have, have far more capable armed forces than European states. And they're, in my view, they're much more realistic because they live in a dangerous neighborhood. And they haven't had the luxury of uh, sort of ensconcing themselves in the European Union and they also don't have um, the they haven't uh, they, they didn't have the, the so-called peace dividend that the Europeans used to really gut their armed forces. And so that would be my second uh, wish is that the Europeans move not just to their two percent goal within NATO. Only uh, a third or so of those states uh, have met that goal, but really that they move beyond that. 
frankly, there's actually no reason that European NATO cannot fully deter and respond to threats from, uh, from the Russian Federation. They vastly outmatch Russia in terms of economic power, in terms of population, in terms of uh, all metrics of, uh, of, of achievement in science and technology. And you have two independent uh, nuclear powers, France and the United Kingdom. And so my view would be that the Europeans really ought to be able to uh, address the challenge of Russia uh, pretty much on their own. And that would free the United States and, uh, and Japan and, and states in East Asia and strategic partners, uh, potentially Vietnam and India, to be able to contain China uh, because China is an expansionist state. And uh, even if you include all of these allies, without the United States, there's no hope for, say, China, India, Korea to be able to contain uh, excuse me, I said uh, Japan, I meant Japan, Korea, India, to be able to contain China on their own. They must have American power. And that, to me, that's not the same equation in uh, Western Europe. So that would be the second choice. And with that, I've pretty much solved, um, you know, all of, uh, all of the problems. I guess the third would be uh, that the United States really needs to prioritize uh, through, through resources as it did during the Cold War, frankly, resources on things like uh, uh, quantum key communications, uh, hypersonic missiles. Uh, the United States is behind uh, both China and Russia in terms of development of hypersonic technology. Uh, we appear to be behind on quantum key communications. And so these are some of the, the areas in which we need enormous investments uh, that I don't think that we're doing. So the only way that, you know, look, uh, I, I don't get four wishes, but um, it's sort of related. And that is that uh, the United States spends an enormous amount of money, uh, the U.S. government, and uh, we, we have a choice uh, and we have an enormous um, debt. And so we have a choice of either taxing our way out and diminishing economic growth, which is not um, a, a great idea, uh, taxing our way out, which will also shrink the middle class, um, or we can inflate our way out, uh, which also will shrink the middle class. We've all suffered inflation over the last 10 years, uh, last two years, rather, uh, inflation about 20%. I don't know about you, but my salary has not gone up 20% in the last two years. Uh, and so what has this done is it's shrinking and it's destroying the middle class. So these economic problems really are related to uh, the, the, the third wish that we invest in uh, in, in advanced and disruptive emerging technology. And the only way to do that is to control entitlements. So sorry that I sort of slipped in a fourth wish in there, but it is related to the third one. You have to control other government spending in order to make investments in outer space technology, quantum key communications, uh, and uh, hypersonic uh, uh, weapons and the rest. And, and if I could add one more, um, biotechnology. Uh, after COVID, we have to also list this now as, uh, as a reality. Bio de biotechnology defense and biotechnology investments have to be made. So we have these vast needs and they require money and money is not unlimited. Therefore, it relates to our economic policy. So it, what I heard you say is an armed society, international society, an armed society is a polite society. And that that rather than 
you know, counting on. I'm I'm actually reading a book right now. It's the uh it's the history of Dodge City, Kansas. And so it's all about Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson and you know that that time in sort of frontier history. And it was this fear of what Bat Masterson and Wyatt Earp might do to you that kept people in line in terms of and so it it you know, it wasn't just you know, uh, a fear of being hung, but it was a fear of these actual actors. And so in many respects, as I sort of try to analogize to our discussion, it's a fear of not necessarily a fear of international law, but it's a fear of the, of a well-armed United States that makes, you know, Russia or China or whomever behave. And it seems like that's, that's sort of what you're saying. That's that's exactly right. It is what I'm saying. In fact, the analogy you drew of the American frontier and the question of who is going to fill that role for law and order is very applicable to the global system. And, you know, obviously the United States is is filling this role and it needs the the support and the uh, assistance of of other like-minded states. All right. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. James Kraska, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. My pleasure. Great to talk to you. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. So talking to James Kraska, you know, James is retired JAG, and then he's been on the faculty at uh, the War College for years. And he, you know, specializes in maritime law. So it was, you know, he's a good guy to have on to talk about international law. And I guess, you know, my big takeaway from it is, you know, very much the, the Andrew Jackson quote where, you know, John Marshall, you've made your decision. Now let's see if you can enforce it. And cause that's in many respects, that's sort of where we are. And it's, uh, you know, if you choose to participate, then, then great. And I think James kind of said, yeah, it's, you know, his wishes were, you know, ones that dealt with, you know, tangible ways to ensure enforcement. And so it's either self-help or enforcement for international law. And, you know, it's sort of where we are and we got to think through ways to help make sure the, the Russians, you know, who've already violated it, maybe we can pull them back or how can we stop the Chinese from from further violating international law, which they seem all too apt to do. This has been a production of the Anwar Deterrent Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Chanington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpaugh. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast.